Open your Bible now, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. And our text today is in this 11th chapter, verses 7 through 15. And my subject this morning is the outstanding Baptist. While you're looking for that passage, there's another scripture that comes to mind. Uh, These are part of Jesus' words in which he spoke a parable in the 25th chapter of Matthew. He says, His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. The measure of a faithful Christian, of an outstanding Christian, is to hear the Lord say in the day of judgment, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now that's my desire, and I hope it's your desire, to hear those words when you stand before God. The Bible says that all of us are going to give an account to God. And even though as a Christian you're not going to be judged for your sins, yet you will be judged for your faithfulness of your service to the Lord. Now I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 11, and this is a a continuation of the subject that we've been discussing uh, actually three weeks before Thanksgiving. We've been on uh, Matthew chapter 11 concerning John the Baptist and, and this story that we have here in chapter 11 about him. And our subject in those previous messages was the doubting Baptist, in which we talked about the doubts that John the Baptist had. But now we come to a different portion of the Scripture, and we're going to change things up a little bit because Jesus changes things. And now we see not the doubting Baptist, but the outstanding Baptist. Now, if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse number 7. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went out ye for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written... Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John... And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, or Elijah, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Father, thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for each one who's come today. Bless us as we look into this portion of Scripture and open our hearts to what you'd have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verse number 7 in our text says, And as they departed. Let me refresh your memory a little bit here about the first six verses of this chapter. Those that departed that are mentioned here are disciples of John the Baptist. And these were men that had been sent to find Jesus and to ask him if he truly was the Messiah that had been promised to Israel. In verse number three, it says that they found Jesus and they asked him, art art thou he that should come or do we look for another? And that was just another way of saying, are you the Messiah? 
Are you truly the king of Israel? Are you the one who's going to sit on the throne of David? Are you the one that was promised to our forefathers, the one who will deliver us from our enemies, bring judgment upon them, and then bring God's kingdom upon the earth? And that was a very good question. But at the same time, it seems like it's a very unexpected question because the one who inquired is John the Baptist. He sent his disciples to found Jesus, to find him rather, and it seems like the question that they asked him should have already been settled in John's mind. He was the one that baptized Jesus. He heard God the Father speak from heaven and say, This is my beloved Son. He's the one that said upon seeing Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the one that said, He comes after me, but he's preferred before me. And John the Baptist said, He, he said, I am not worthy to untie his shoes. And John said, He must increase and I must decrease. And all of those statements that were made by John were built upon this premise that, yes, of course, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one that's been long promised and will save his people from their sins. And so how is it now that John must send his disciples to ask Jesus about something that he before believed without question? And that in itself is a good question. And the answer to it is that John began to have doubts. He had doubts because of misunderstandings. He had doubts because of change, difficult circumstances. And so John was unsettled for a time, and yet he knew where to go to find the right answers. He sent his disciples to the one that answers all questions, the one who is the omniscient God, the one who knows all things. He sent them to Jesus. Now, verse number 2 helps us to understand why John had become confused and why he had to ask. And it's because he had been put in prison by Herod, and there he was languishing in that dungeon in a desert fortress near the Dead Sea called Machaerus. And he'd been shut away from seeing Jesus' personal ministry, so he wasn't able to follow Jesus around and see the things that he did. And then he was also confused because here he was sitting in prison and he was a servant of God. He was a man that had had preached the word of God unceasingly without failing, preaching the way that God wanted him to preach. And yet here he was preaching the Messiah, the one who could deliver. And yet he was sitting in the prison and the Messiah had not come to deliver him. So there was a, a moment of doubt. And we reflected on that in our previous messages, and we explained how that Christians can become like John the Baptist. We, because of circumstances that we get into, that sometimes we doubt. And we have to go to the same place that John the Baptist did. We have to go to Jesus to find those answers, to remove our doubts, and to restore our faith. And so what Jesus did was to give these representatives of John the undeniable proof that he was truly the Son of God. So they went back to John, and they told John about what they had seen and heard, and we don't find John asking this question again. But we notice also in the text that we have before us today that after those men returned to speak to John and to tell them what Jesus said, that Jesus turned around and he faced the crowd, and he began to talk about the outstanding character of John the Baptist. Now, I'd like you to notice today, and this is where we'll spend our time. We have another part of this message next week. But today we're going to spend our time just on this one part, the praise from Jesus. 
the praise that Jesus gave concerning John the Baptist. And we need to understand this. Why did Jesus begin to speak in such glowing terms about John? Well, it's certain that he wanted them to know that John, John's doubt was not a, a failure of commitment to the message of Christ. John was a prophet, and he'd been sent from God. And the people didn't really need to be coaxed on that point. They believed John was a prophet. They were convinced of that. And how do we know? Well, we look at all the people that came to be baptized by John. He was a very uh, popular preacher at that time. Uh, John began a ministry of preaching baptism for, uh, of the repentance of sins. And so there were people that came from miles around to hear John the Baptist speak. And they came to be baptized. And that was very significant. Because when they were baptized, that was an admission of their sin. Isn't that what John told them? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so people came and they repented of their sins and they were baptized. Now, we don't think too much about that. Not not in this congregation that baptism would be such a big thing. It, It is an important thing. The Bible says that it is. But for these Jews that would come to John the Baptist for baptism and admit that they were sinners, it also meant that they were putting themselves down on the level of Gentiles. That even though they were the chosen people of God, yet they were still sinners. They were apart from God. They needed the cleansing of salvation. And so that really put them on par with Gentile nations that were strangers to God. And that was a huge admission for these people to make. And they wouldn't have done that unless they truly believed that John was a prophet. And so now, what is Jesus doing? Is he trying to convince them that John is a prophet? No. But he reiterates it, and he does it for a particular purpose. Now, what is that purpose? Why was Jesus so concerned about it? Well, if John was God's prophet, and John said that Jesus was the Messiah, then it was their duty to believe the prophet. It was their duty to receive Christ as the king and as the savior. So here's the position that the people were in. How could you believe that John is actually a prophet that's been sent by God, that he speaks the truth of God's word, and then disbelieve what that prophet says? And that put the people into a very strange position, but that's where they were. They affirmed John as a prophet, but they rejected, continued to reject Jesus as the Messiah. And that made no sense. And so what Jesus is about to show them is that they're in a a precarious situation, a strange situation. They are in an unfounded, contradictory position. John was an outstanding prophet, and he was an outstanding Baptist. Now, we're going to take a little bit closer look at that today, and we're going to see what Jesus had to say about him. He praised John the Baptist. And I would submit to you that you that, that John, rather, had characteristics that all of us need to have to be outstanding men and women and teenagers for our faith in Christ. Now we notice there's a series of rhetorical questions that Jesus asked uh, uh, the people about John beginning in verse number seven and these go down through verse number nine. But in verse number seven it says, and as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. 
Jesus asked that question so that he could emphasize how that John was steadfast in his convictions. Jesus was going to prove to them that John was steadfast. John had sent his disciples to inquire of Jesus, and there were people that had misinterpreted that gesture. And so uh, John had at once strongly declared that Jesus was the one that they were long expecting. John forcefully told the people that, and he stood by it, But now, because of this question, because he had sent these disciples to see Jesus, now the people said, John is vacillating. John is not really a person with true convictions. Now they say John is fickle. He's a person that easily changes his mind. And so Jesus began to ask questions. And he said, who did you go to see? Why did you travel from so far up in Galilee all the way down to Judea, down to the Dead Sea in the area with John, where John was preaching, why did you go all the way down there? Why would you go to hear him? Why, why, why did you, do you think that you were going to see a, an, ordinary, an ordinary guy? Did, did you really think that there's something else going on there like a circus act? Are you attracted to John the Baptist because he's some sort of bizarre character? And the way that Jesus phrased that is simply this. Did you go to see a reed shaken with the wind? And he was making a reference there to the common reeds that grew around the Jordan River and in marshy areas. And these were stalks that would lean one way or the other, depending on which way the wind was blowing. Now, Jesus made that reference because these are the kinds of places where John baptized. And so he asked, did you go to see a guy that gives in to popular opinion? Did you go to see someone who could be moved in one direction or the other, depending upon who is in the crowd or who was listening to him? Did you go to see a person who told you things that you wanted to hear? And the answer is obvious. The answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. They went to see John because he was different from what they were used to. There were plenty of fickle people in Israel, plenty of religious leaders that that bowed and bent, one that loved the praises of men rather than the praise of God. They could find a, a teacher just about anywhere in Jerusalem that could tell them what they wanted to hear. But John was nothing like that. He came with a message from God, and he stayed on point. He stood straight up like a strong oak tree. John would not bend in the wind. So he wasn't swayed by anyone's opinion. What John did was to move as the Spirit of God moved him, and he preached what God told him to preach, nothing more and nothing less. He's simply an outstanding Baptist. And I dare say that we need to be outstanding Baptists. Now, there's some people that say, well, you really don't need to worry about that. Let's, let's just be Christians, and let's just all be general Christians and leave it at that. And I'm going to have to tell you this morning that I disagree with that. I, we have the name Baptist on our sign out front for a purpose. If we were anything other than Baptist, then we'd name ourselves something else. We are Baptist. And the reason that we're Baptists is because we believe that we have this interpretation of the Word of God that is right. We, we would be something else if we didn't think that we were right. Now, but more importantly than just the name itself, it's what distinguishes our doctrine. And we need to be people who are very distinctive in our convictions, and we stand strongly on what we believe, on what comes from God's Word, and we will not sway in our beliefs depending upon how the culture thinks that we ought to do. 
And when I was growing up in our church back in Kentucky, we had a large bus ministry. I mentioned that last week in the message. And over the years, we brought thousands of children to church to hear about Jesus. And on the top of each of those buses, on both sides of the buses, right above the windows, there was a, there was a slogan that was painted on the buses that said, distinctively, Baptist. And we meant that we were not the -the run-of-the-mill, wishy-washy Baptists that stand for nothing and fall for everything. We knew what we believed. We knew the doctrines were right out of the Bible. We taught that salvation is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. We taught that people are sinners and they must repent of their sins. And we taught that people, in order to see the kingdom of God, must be born again. We taught that there was a real hell for unbelievers And there's a real heaven for those who place their faith in Christ. And we taught that Christians must stand for Christ. They must live for Christ. They must witness for Christ. As the words that we read last week from the Apostle Paul said, that we are to be renewed in our minds so that we walk and we talk and we look like Christians. And I'm here to tell you today that I haven't changed in those convictions. Not in all these years, I haven't changed about what the people of God are to do. And the Berean Baptist Church was founded over 40 years ago, and it's not changed from those convictions. But as we look over that time period, from that four, over that 40 years, we see that there is a great change in what we call the Christian world, because in that time, leaders, Christian leaders, have been swayed so that they don't want to offend anybody with the gospel. And so what's happened is that the church arms are open wide to accept the world and everything that the world wants and what the world believes. Today we have the purpose-driven church, and its purpose is not the same as Jesus and the apostles. It was the apostle Paul who said, "...have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness." We find today that preachers are wishy-washy. They wouldn't know an unfruitful work of ungodliness if they saw one. They're reeds that are blown with the wind. And it's become so bad that the pastor of the largest church in America cannot give an accurate gospel presentation. He'll go on national TV, and he's afraid to say anything that offends Do I need to remind you that Paul said that the cross of Christ is always offensive? The cross is not something that you can make pretty. The cross is an instrument of death. It's the place where Jesus went to die for what? For filthy sinners. You can't make that pretty for people. What we need are Baptists that stand for the truth who will not compromise the principles of our Baptist forefathers and the heritage that we have received from Jesus and the apostles. Now, I, I, I don't want to personally, purposely offend people. I, I don't try to do that. But we're not afraid to offend people. If the gospel offends, if the truth offends, if the Bible offends, so be it. It has to be that way. I would rather offend anybody than I would to offend God. Paul said also, be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. David wrote in the Psalms, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. 
and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. David was describing a man like John the Baptist, and I hope that that describes you and me. We will not be shaken. We will not be confounded by what is popular, but we'll stand like strong trees holding up the unchangeable, infallible truth of God's word. This is a premise that we stand on, that the Bible is truth. And we stand on this principle, let God be true and every man a liar. We stand upon the truth that salvation is in God, that Jesus is God. And just as we read in Scripture, there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. So Jesus says, no, 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 no. John is not a vacillating character. Don't judge him on one question. Judge him on his life. Judge him on his message. Judge how he never bowed his knee to anyone but God. So Jesus says, if you believe that John is a prophet, then you must believe what he said about me. He said he's steadfast in his convictions. Now let's expand on that thought for just a moment and look next at how John was unshakable in adversity. Unshakable in adversity. And it's not as if John didn't have opposition. John was not standing tall and straight because the wind wasn't blowing. No, folks, there were strong winds of opposition. He stood up against the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they came to be baptized. They came because it was the fashionable thing to do, and John refused them. When the crowds came to hear John, the religious leaders from both parties said, well, we need to get in on this thing. We need to get down there and get baptized too. These, this is a big religious fad that's going on now. We need to be baptized too. If we want to stay in good with the people, then we better get good with John. But John saw through all of that. He saw they weren't repentant, that they were following a religious fad. And so when they came to him, he called them snakes in the grass. He called them a brood of vipers. They were the antithesis of John. They were seeking popularity, and John wasn't. And so these men came to be baptized because it was a self-serving thing to do. Have you noticed how churches get caught up in the next greatest movement that they think is going to win people to Christ? A few years ago, it was the movie, The Passion of Christ. And there were people who said, that is the greatest evangelistic tool that the world has ever seen. And churches sent their congregations to movie theaters to watch it, provided tickets for it. Some even brought the movie into their churches so they could use that for their Sunday services. And I'd have to ask you a question, what happened to all of those people? What happened to the revival that was supposed to come because of this movie that was produced? Oh, there were people that said, oh, it's so sad, it's, it's so moving, it made me want to follow Christ. Where are all those people now? You see, you have a crowd that follows the religious fad, and they tell you that preaching is no longer in vogue. What we need in the church today is drama presentations. What we need is a rock band and a smoke machine. We need to have a rocking good time in church and just bring on the entertainment. And so they say the Bible's too boring for us. Preaching is a waste of time. Give us excitement. That's what we want in the church. Make the church more like a video game. Tweet me something, baby. Make me feel good about myself. 
And this is going to come up again because this is exactly what Jesus says later. Let me just give you a preview down in verses 16 and 17. He says, But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and ye have not lamented. Now, I'll explain those verses a few messages down the line, but what he's talking about there is a fickle crowd that can never be satisfied. These are people that are following a fad instead of Jesus Christ. Their religion is for their glory, not for God's glory. Let me tell you something about preaching the Word of God. This is something that cannot be replaced. This is God's method. His method is not the music program. His method is not teen programs. His method is not social outings. Those things are okay in their right place, but that is not the primary means of reaching people with the gospel of Christ. Here's what Paul said. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without what? A preacher. How shall they hear without a preacher? Paul didn't say, well, how are we going to get them in without head-pounding music? How are they going to believe unless we got people jumping over the pews and rolling around in the floor? How are they going to believe without that? How are they going to believe unless we got 47 feel-good stories to tell them every time we get up to preach a message? Oh, Paul says, here's what they need. They need a preacher. They need the Word of God And what they need to do is start being the church of the living God and start playing around about this thing. Now, more pointed here, though, to the unshakable character of John in the midst of that adversity is the reason that John was in the prison. And we've been over it in previous messages, so I'm not going to spend a lot more time here. But the people believed that John was a prophet because he stood up and he preached against the king's sin as well as against the poor man's sin. And John was in prison because he would not keep his mouth shut about wicked Herod and his adulterous, incestuous relationships. Joel Osteen was asked on national TV if he would attend a gay wedding. You know what his answer was? Well, if you've ever listened to him, when he gets pointed questions, the first thing he does is skip, hop, jump around, try to evade it, try to give a, not to give an answer to it that would upset the host or anyone else. But finally, his answer to this question, would you attend a gay wedding, was yes. Can you imagine John the Baptist being asked a question like that? Hey, John, Herod has invited you to his wedding He stole his brother's wife, and he's now living in adultery with her, and they're getting married. Will you come to the wedding? Do you approve of that? Well, John wouldn't give a Joel Osteen answer to that. He didn't answer like Joel, even when it meant going to a dungeon in the scorching desert. And I thought about that. Can you you imagine Joel Osteen being in prison for Christ? And can you see him at Pelican Bay? You say, well, why do you pick on Joel Osteen so much? Well, I do because he is the epitome of today's feel-good church crowd. They don't stand for anything. And you know that Joel doesn't stand for anything or knows anything at all because just a few weeks ago he said that Mormons are Christians. Consider that for just a moment. Mormons, he said, are Christians. It doesn't matter that, that they believe that Jesus was just one of many gods. And it doesn't matter that they reject 1,800 years of gospel preaching and say we didn't have the truth until their strange prophet, Joseph Smith, came on the scene. 
It doesn't matter that they don't believe the Christ of the Bible, that he is the one and only eternal God. Joel says they're Christians because that's the safe thing to say. You're not going to hear him preach on sin. You won't hear him preach about hell. You won't hear him say that salvation is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. He's not interested whether people are convicted of their sins. People can go to church there and they can say, ah, I just don't have to turn from sin here. I can do what I want. I can live any way that I want to. Anything that's least distasteful to the flesh, I don't worry about that. I'll stand up for Christ if it costs me nothing. Well, it cost John everything. He went to prison and then his life was taken from him. Jesus said, you know John is a prophet because he's unlike any of those religious fools that you've been following. You didn't go out in the wilderness to see him because he's an ordinary guy. He said, you went out to see him because he is like Elijah. He's like Jeremiah. He preaches the truth no matter who is against him. And I know that's what a lot of people think about us here. I mean, there was a fellow that visited me a couple of months ago, and uh, he was a pretty nice guy, but he came in trying to get me to support an ecumenical fellowship. And when he came in, some of his first words that he said to me was this, I knew that you would be the most difficult pastor in town to talk to. What did he mean by that? Well, he meant that your church has a reputation for sticking to your guns when it comes to what you believe about the Bible. He was telling me, you are distinctively Baptist without actually using those words. I don't mind that. I want our church to be different. I, 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 I don't mind it if people think that we're different. I, I'd like for the Bible to stand out here. I'd like, for, I'd like for, the, for the word of God to be paramount. I want the gospel to stand out. And if the rest of the religious community has a problem with that, that's okay. They can have their fat, and we'll have fellowship with Jesus Christ. So there's a reason why when people come here and they say, well, we've never heard preachers talk like that before. We've never heard preachers say what you say, not in this town. But that's not me. I'm not holding myself up. I'm holding you up because that's the mission of Berean Baptist Church. This is a church that will not stand for anything else other than the word of God. I know that the first time that I come to preach in this pulpit without my Bible, that I'll hear about that. And if I say something like this about my beliefs, well, it could be this way, or it could be that way. What do you think about it? We'll just go with that. I'd be done here. I'm done at Berean Baptist. You know, it kind of amused me that we had a preacher that came here oh, a little over a year ago, and he came into the pulpit without his Bible. He preached without his Bible. And it was innocent enough because what he had done, he just printed verses that he wanted to use on, on, uh, into his message. And that's what I do sometimes or most of the time. But someone was offended by that because the preacher came into the pulpit without the Bible in his hand. Now that, that tells me something. It tells me that this church will not stand for that. Now, the man was innocent in this particular case, but the point is well taken, that if you start into the pulpit without your Bible, that probably you're going to end up without the Bible, and the church will not stand for that. Another interesting thing that happened a couple of years ago was in our forum class. We had another visiting preacher, and he taught the forum class also, and one of the questions that came from the floor was, do you preach verse by verse? Do you do expository preaching? And the implication of that question was preaching the Bible verse by verse is the way that we're supposed to preach it. 
We're supposed to teach the Bible in its context, preach it the way that it says it. And I think if we were to change that method, then the church wouldn't be happy. You see, you don't come to church to hear opinions about the latest article in the newspaper. And you don't come to hear me talk about Obamacare and the latest dip in the stock market. That's not my thing. Leave that to the economists and the politicians. We care about the health of a person's soul and about God's economy. And so I preach from the Bible and not the newspaper. Folks, the most current event that you need to know about right now, the most current event is this, that Jesus is coming back. And it's going to be far better for you to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, than to hear him say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Far more important that you hear the right words from Jesus. Now let me mention to you the next question that he asked about John. And we'll take up more of this the next time. But the next question is in verse number 8. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. This shows us that John was strong to the extreme. And I mean that John was not interested in any job but what God gave him to do. As I said, we're going to talk more about that next time. But I want you to notice something here, how that John was not wrapped up in the materialistic lifestyle that characterizes so much of Christianity today. John was a powerful man. Probably he would have been successful at anything that he tried to do. He was a dynamic person. He was a great speaker. I suppose you could call him the Charles Spurgeon of wilderness preachers. But from a purely human perspective, it looked like that John was headed for greatness. But we know that John was not great from the human perspective because everything about him was the exact opposite of what most people think in terms of greatness. He spurned everything that was material. He went out into the desert to live an austere lifestyle of self-denial. He's the guy that wore the camel hair coat and the, and the, the old hide around him tied with a leather belt. He ate insects. That's his, that's his meals. And it's all the more remarkable that people would go out to see John because in Jewish thought, a person that lived like that, a person that was poor, they were poor because of God's disfavor. That was no proof that God's power was in him, no proof that God was blessing him. And yet the Bible does say that John was filled with the Holy Spirit. He didn't have a nickel to his name, but that has nothing at all to do with being great in God's eyes. Now, the people didn't come to see John because he was a soft man. The people in the king's courts were soft. And the reason that Jesus brings this up is because these people in the king's court were frilly. They were dressed to the nines. And what religious people would do, the leaders would sometimes do, they would go to the king and they would seek a position in his court and they would exchange their religious robes that they would normally wear and put on something that was more suitable to the king and being in the king's court. Now, in other words, in Jesus' mind, that was comparable to a spiritually spineless person. They couldn't take, take things the hard way. They couldn't carry the cross, as Jesus says you must do. Take up your cross and follow me. They couldn't do that because they were afraid of getting a splinter, much less that they would have nails driven into their hands and their feet. You know, this is the way that many Christians are, that we are looking for the easy way out, and I admit, I sometimes fall into that trap. 
We get worried about what we might have to give up rather than what we'll gain by giving everything, giving all for Christ. John lived this austere lifestyle because pursuing wealth and pursuing Christ are mutually exclusive. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be well off and be a Christian. It just means that if you are always concentrating on material things to the exclusion of the spiritual, you will never be great in God's eyes. If you never have two dimes to rub together, that doesn't mean that God isn't blessing you. And I think those of you that have been through some tough times, and especially in this economy, you've gone through some hardships. You already know this. You, you already know that God blesses you whether or not it shows up in your bank account. I'm just telling others that are wondering about this that you really can experience joy and peace and blessing in Jesus Christ without living the American lifestyle. Now, a good case in point about that is our missionary Wilson Maungo. We talked a little bit about him in the forum class this morning. He's the missionary, if some of you don't know him, uh, who came from, he's, he's a native Kenyan, and he came here to present his ministry. And he's a great man, but, but he was amazed by things that we have. He, he was amazed by the amount of food that we throw away. He was here one day as our kids were having their lunch at, uh, for school, and uh, what our kids had for one day is what their kids would have maybe for a week or sometimes even a month. They wouldn't see that much food. He was amazed by what he threw away. we throw away. He was amazed by our affluence. But not once did he say to me, I sure do wish that I could live in America. He's happy where God put him. He's happy doing what he's doing because it's God's work. And so when he comes here and he asks for American dollars, he doesn't ask for it for luxury so he can live a great life in Kenya. He asks for it because he's going to take that money and give it to people who need to be reached with the gospel. Now let me ask you something as we finish today. To what extremes are you willing to go for Christ? Are you willing to go to any extreme at all for him? I mean, are you willing to sacrifice anything for him? And I'd ask you, like Jesus asked them, what did you go in the wilderness to see? Did you go to see a man of God? And did you go to hear the word of God? And if you did, then why haven't you believed it? Why aren't you following him? Why don't you believe in the Christ? And I would ask you, what did you come to church for today? What is it that you came here to see? I know it's not entertainment because we don't have any. We don't have a band. I know it's not drama because we don't have a dog and pony show. I, I know it's... Not all these other things that a lot of churches are offering people because we don't have those things. But if you came here because you thought it was good for your soul, then why don't you believe what God says? Why don't you believe what Jesus says? If it's salvation, why haven't you believed that Jesus is the Christ? Why haven't you believed the saving of your soul? And if you are a Christian, what did you come here to see? I mean, did you come to hear something about God? And if you've thought that you had learned something when you came here about serving God, then why would you leave here without doing it? Why don't you believe? Why don't you do what Jesus says? What do you gain by coming to church if you're not going to follow what Scripture says? Jesus said John is steadfast in his conviction. John is unshakable in adversity. John is extreme or strong to the extreme. John is committed. So he told the people, don't make any mistake about where John stands. 
And that's a good question for you too. Where do you stand? Do people, are people mistaken about what you really believe? Are people mistaken about who you are? Do they even know that you're a Christian? What is it that you believe? And what will be said about you in the judgment? Will you hear Jesus say, well done, that's a good job? Well done, faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy Lord. Will he say that about you? I hope that you're concerned about that, and I hope that he will, because you are obeying and living like Christ wants you to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to be here today and to look into your word. Lord, we just ask you that you'd help us to stand strong on the truths that we find in Scripture Help us, Lord, that we would not bend and sway with people's opinions, but we would believe the Bible wholeheartedly and stand strongly upon it. Lord, I pray if there's someone here who hasn't believed in you as Savior, that they would trust you even at this moment, that right now they can know that they're on their way to heaven. And, Lord, we pray for Christians who come to church, but their lifestyles outside of the church give no indication at all that they really know you. I pray for them because we know that we're going to have to stand before you and give an account. And we do want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Blessing this invitation today, Lord, we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.